we're picking up this week in our continued series, Dojo Discussions, where we're looking at the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And this week, last week, we ended with Genesis 5 and right at the beginning of Genesis 6. Genesis 6, the very beginning of it. So Genesis 6, 7, 8, um, actually through 9, yeah, 6, 7, 8, and 9, those comprised the flood story in Genesis, the story of Noah. And we looked at the events leading up to that story. And then there's going to be some events right after the story that's going to get us to the main part of the Bible, which is the introduction of Abram or Abraham. And so we are at the beginning of the flood story, right before we get to the account of Noah. We have, remember last week, we had the genealogies. So we, we traced the two lines, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And, and the two line, the two genealogies were contrasting. They were showing the difference uh, rhetorically and literarily between people who spread on the earth, who came up and built things like cities and artistry and technology and introduced polygamy. Uh, we looked at that and that was how that characterized the line of Cain. And then in contrast to that, we saw the line of Seth culminating in this guy named Noah. And all throughout that line, the only thing that noted was um, you saw people walking with God. You saw people calling on the name of the Lord. So there's these two lines that have been contrasted in Genesis thus far. And remember, we're not getting exhaustive genealogy. We're not getting uh, accounts of all the events going on in the world. We're just getting high-speed snapshots of key moments in time leading or taking us from Adam and Eve, from the creation and the fall, and the promise of the seed of the woman who would one day crush the head of the serpent, all the way through up until we get to this guy, Abraham. And so we're just getting the in-between of all of human history. And so it's going at a super fast pace, and it's it's pulling from concepts and motifs and um and mythological ideas that were per, uh, percolating in the ancient world, the ancient Near East. And it's using these concepts to tell the story of God's people for his people in ways that they could pass on. And that would sort of, as we uh, borrowed the C.S. Lewis phrase, as sort of a true myth. In other words, the, the actual account using the form of mythology, using the form of literary artistry from the ancient world, but telling the events through the perspective of God's covenant people. And so that's what you have in Genesis 1 through 11. Super important to keep that in mind. Otherwise, we get bogged down in all the questions that people immediately want to jump in and start asking about these early chapters. Where did Cain get his wife? How did he build a city if it was just him on the earth? How did, you know, all of these things that the text never states and that are not necessary if you divorce yourself from a literalistic reading of the text, which we want to do because we aren't meant to read these passages as woodenly, literal, exhaustive, scientific, genealogical history. They're not that. There's something else. There's something different. Doesn't mean they didn't happen. Don't go the route that some uh, liberal Protestant scholars over the past 100, 200 years have done and said, oh, it's all symbol. It's all story. It's all allegory. It, no, it's none of that. 
um, there are elements that are non-literal, but that doesn't mean you then run to the opposite side and say, oh, well, it's all just symbol and story. You know, if you if you listen to Jordan Peterson, he takes uh, uh, that approach a lot of times in his understanding of Genesis. You know, he, he says these are all stories and archetypes and fables and mythology. And, and he has a high view of them. He's very reverent towards these stories. But if you listen to his interpretations of Genesis and, and Old Testament passages, you realize he's actually operating from uh, a, an older liberal Protestant paradigm that takes all of these things as just fables, as just uh, illustrations of overall human tendencies, so to speak, as, as kind of stories that encapsulate spiritual truths. And that's not what we're doing. That's that's because I don't believe that's correct. I think it's 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 not horrendous. I mean, it's better than just dismissing it as a whole, but it's not how the readers at the time would have read it. And it, it's not how the New Testament authors read it. And so we want to be careful of, of you know, things, uh, interpretations like that. We want to be just as careful of interpretations like that as we do of the woodenly literal interpretations that you get at like art museums or flood uh, exhibits or young earth creationist literature where everything is taken as scientifically literal in Genesis early chapters. We want to avoid both of those. Those are the extremes that we want to keep and push behind. Uh, instead, we want to take a, a critical realist approach. We want to take a, a literary competency. We want to read the text and listen to what it would have said to the original audience first. And only once we have a relatively good grasp of that, then do we try to read it and say, now, what does this say to us today? And in some passages, it's easier. In some passages, it's harder. And this passage today we're going to look at is the most enigmatic, the most mysterious, the most uh, ambiguous passage in the entire Bible. And it's not even close. I mean, there's a lot in the Bible that, that's hard to understand. It's a massive library of ancient texts spanning cultures and languages and authors. Yeah, all that's true. This passage in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, by far, by not even close, it's the most uh, mysterious passage in the Bible. And because of that, we're going to look at it, and we're going to try to put it in its context. We're going to try to look at what it might have said to them at the time, and there are multiple things that it might have said because there are a lot of issues that are that change based on how you translate this passage. So if you're just reading this passage in one English translation, you are not getting what the passage is saying or what it might be saying in its fullness. So beware of that. And then we're going to look at what might it have to say to us today based on how we interpret it. So we're going to we're drilling down just on this one passage, but it's because it's such an important or at least such a, it's actually not an important passage in, in the overall scheme. That's the irony, is this passage isn't super important in the overall scheme of Genesis. It's almost like a, an aside, but because it's so mysterious, people have been fascinated by this passage. Whole ancient apocryphal books have been written about this passage. Um, people have instructed constructed entire uh, hierarchies of, of angelic and demonic beings and, and concepts based largely on this passage, cobbled together with a few other passages. So we want to be very careful, though, when we approach it and, and recognize the ambiguity. We're going to hold it in loose hand. So 
Let's jump in at the end of Genesis 5. It ended with verse 32 that said, After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. You know, we discussed how could people live this long, uh, you know, in 500 years, that's insane. And we looked at, in comparison to the Sumerian kings list that predates the Genesis account, how the Sumerian kings list, they were living tens of thousands of years before the flood. And then thousands of years after, well, in the Genesis account, you have them living hundreds of years before the flood and then um, uh, somewhat over 100 after. So either way you slice it, every source in the ancient world that speaks about a flood that we know of had people living a lot longer during it than they did after, whatever that means. Take it for what it is. Um, We said how some people have suggested it was God the text only says that these people lived that long. So God was preserving certain people. So it's not like everybody lived that long, but just the people in this line that he preserved uh, who were unique. So these 10 names leading up to Noah were, were unique individuals. They were, um, if God preserved their lives, check the podcast last week and look at the commentaries and see what view you arrive at. But either way, we get to Noah and Noah's sons. So the end of the genealogy, linear genealogy, and then the 10th name, it's a segment of genealogy. It gives us three sons. Now there's a break before the main account of Noah, what's going to happen in Noah's life, comes in the next chapter. And there's this interlude. The question is, when we read chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, is that the end of chapter 5? In other words, is that meant to be the conclusion of the events of chapter 5? And so it's just talking about the events of chapter 5. Or is it meant to be the introduction to what's going to happen in chapter 6? In other words, is this the conclusion of this time of humanity spreading on the earth and these genealogies of Cain and Seth? Or is what we're about to read the beginning of the flood story? And the reason that matters is because it will make a difference in what you read the events that we're about to see as discussing how they're related to the previous section or how they're related to the next section. And so this is where you will have to decide. You will have to read on your own and study and come to whatever conclusions you come to. But just know that it can be read both ways. So this is what we read. And I'm, I'm debating on whether I should read from, I usually just read from the NIV because that's what most people are reading, or if I should Uh, read from the Hebrew text and try to transliterate it as I go. I'm going to do, I'm going to read it from the Hebrew text or I'm going to give a kind of a, I'm going to give a very wooden translation, a very literalistic translation from the Hebrew text. And then as we discuss it, you can compare that with what you read in your Bibles because not everybody following this is reading the NIV. So this is the Hebrew text. I'm going to read it very woodenly. It says, And it was that to begin humankind to multiply. So you would say that, and it was when or as humankind, Adam, began to multiply on the face of the Adamah, ground. So when Adam began to multiply on the Adamah, when humanity began to multiply on the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them, they saw the sons of God, the daughters of men, Adam, the daughters of humanity, that they were good and they took them 
wives from any or from all who they chose. Okay, so that's what the text says. And it was when the sun, when humanity, Adam, began to increase on the face of the ground, daughters were born to them. And the sons of God saw the daughters of Adam, that they were good, and they took for them wives from all who they chose. This is what it says in Hebrew. So <clears throat> that's the first section. Then, verse 3, And Yahweh said, or God said, Yahweh is his covenant name, and Yahweh said, My spirit will not, and this word yadon is, we don't exactly know how to translate it here, because it can be translated as my spirit will not remain, or my spirit will not abide, or my spirit will not contend. So it could have the influence of remaining with, I mean, it could have the definition of remaining with, or it can have the de definition of struggling with, contending with. So God says, my spirit will not blank in Adam forever, in so much as he is flesh, and his days will be 120 years. So it's the second chunk of information we have. And then we come to the next part. As a little parenthetical note, the text says, the Nephilim, and some translations say giants, some translations say fallen ones, most translations just leave it as the Nephilim, this untranslated term, were on the earth in those days, or in the land in those days, and also afterwards. When they went, or when to, yeah, when they went, the sons of God, to the daughters of Adam, and they bore children for them, or they had children for them. These were the Giborim, the warriors, which are from ancient times, men of name. So, we're going to stop here, those first four verses. Now, that was painfully literal how I read it to you. The reason that I read it in Hebrew though is so you can get a sense of the ambiguity of this passage. When you're just reading through in Genesis, you're just like, okay, all right, this story sounds a like God, daughter's man, keep reading and you just gloss over it. But there's so much in this passage that is unknown, that is mm, mysterious, and that depends on how you translate certain words. And that's what's tricky about this section, and that's why it's so mysterious. So, let me read you how the NIV translates it. The NIV says, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, there's nothing wrong. That's a, that's a fine translation. That's one way you can translate this passage. And there's every verse in this section has questions about it. 
That's why this section is so hard for people to wrap their mind around. I, I mentioned this last week in the podcast. If you didn't listen last week or if you didn't, weren't here on Facebook Live, last week I talked about how my first trip to India, my very first time I ever went to India to teach and to uh, spend time with Christian pastors over there, village pastors, untrained, non-seminary graduates, just pastors who some of them, their church was just under a tree in a village, uh, you know, they, they weren't, this was like rural tribal area pastors. And we had a whole conference all week about leadership and ministry and Bible interpretation and all of this. That was really fun time of just spending time with our friends over there. At the very end, we had a session of Q and a where they could ask any questions they wanted about anything we talked about and we would do our best to answer. Very first question, very first question. And we had not talked about Genesis, uh, the, this passage at all. The very first question was, yes, excuse me, sir. In Genesis chapter six, verses one through four, who are the Nephilim and the sons of God and the daughters of men? First question they asked. Of all the questions that these village pastors could have asked about the entire Bible, this was the passage that they could not wait to ask about. And they're not alone. People who read this all the time, Google sometime Nephilim, Google sons of God, Nephilim. You will find numerous uh, passages, blog entries, articles, accounts, apocryphal books about this passage because it's so mysterious. And we wonder what is happening in this. When men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever for his mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. And then this text moves on. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. The Lord was filled with regret or was grieved that he had made humanity on the earth or made Adam in the land and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, the birds of the air, for I am grieved or I regret that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9, now this is the account of Noah. So this whole section is describing, some whatever it's describing is something that a time when things had gotten so bad that God himself says, I regret or I am grieved that I have created Adam to begin with. That in and of itself is a theological statement that blows some people's systematic theology out of the water. People bend over backwards to say, well, God doesn't really regret because that would imply that God doesn't like something that God allowed to happen. And we know that God is impassable. He never changes. He, he can't be affected by change or he can't lack and grief or regret implies lack. So therefore God can't really be grieving or regretting. So this must be anthropomorphic language that is ascribed to God. 
by a human author. Da, 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 da. Well, okay, maybe, but the text flat out two times says, God himself said, I regret or I am grieved that I created humanity. So this is the thing that I like about the Hebrew Bible is in these mysterious and enigmatic passages, it will throw little curveballs in there that just when you have all of your systematic theology ducks in a row, just when you think you understand the nature of God, the character of God, the attributes of God, then you read something like this and it's just like a record scratch. Like, wait, what? What did I just read? And that's what scripture does when you really study it. You don't get that as much when you study scripture systematically as in a theological textbook with, with you know, everything's nice and laid out in, in exact order. No, when you read the story of God, when you read scripture as a story rather than as a list of attributes of God, which it never was, then you get passages and things like this that really push your understanding of God and make you have to stop and go, wait a minute. This God seems awfully emotional. He seems awfully relatable to humanity in certain ways. This is a God who's going to come down before rendering judgment on an entire area of wickedness in just a few chapters from now. He's going to come down and let a nomadic herdsman barter with him to try to stave off judgment on this area known as the cities of the plain, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the other cities. This is a very relate. This is a God who who almost goes out of his way to divinely condescend to being in relationship with his people. That's the thing that you see in Scripture. So yes, we're, we haven't glossed over sons of God, daughters of men, Nephilim. We're going to get there. But what I'm trying to do is situate first of all the lay of the land that when we're reading scripture, we're not reading a textbook on systematic theology. We're not reading a list of the attributes of God. We're not reading medieval um, angelology, demonology, cosmology. We're not reading any of that. We're not reading philosophical treatises on divine impassibility or divine immutability or any of these other later medieval scholastic terms that theologians came up with that ultimately flatten out and tame the story that God told his, tells his people. But when we actually put the systematic theology textbooks away, and I've got a bunch of them on the shelf right up there. That's all systematic theology texts, by the way. It's not that anything is evil or wrong with those, but they should come at the very end of our study of scripture. In other words, we should never begin our study of scripture with studying systematic theology. This is a pet peeve of mine, by the way, in seminaries and Bible colleges, is before you ever learn the languages, before you're ever forced to learn Greek and Hebrew and, and really exegete the texts, they have you as first-year students taking systematic theology classes, usually. I think that's the worst idea that you could possibly do in theological education. Because what that does is it gives people a grid before they've even had a chance to dive into the text itself. And so then from then on, they read the text through that grid that they've gotten from whoever the systematic theologian that they're reading is. And I think it's the complete backwards way. It, it, shouldn't, it should not be done that way, in my opinion. It's just my opinion, but for what it's worth. I wish my systematic theology had come at the end of my seminary studies rather than at the beginning. Because then I would have been able to challenge and to think through and to question and to work out my theology without having this grid that, it, that was imposed on the text as I read. That's another session for another time. 
I'm sure systematic theologians, if any of you are watching or listening to this, are gnashing your teeth at me right now, but too bad. Um, so when we read Genesis, when we read the accounts as the story that it is, we come across a very unpredictable God. We come across a very uncontainable God, a God who doesn't always do what we think a God should do. And, and that's, that's one of the hardest things, especially for Old Testament readers. It's some in the New Testament for sure, but in the Old Testament, it's everywhere. It's like God is constantly acting in ways that push against our concepts and the ancient world's concepts of what a proper deity should be like. He's never, you can't put him in a box, as cliche as that phrase is. And so God is about to basically, in the next chapters, in the account of Noah, We'll give you, I'll just look ahead real quick, and then we'll get back to this Sons of God, Daughters of Man. In the next few chapters, the end of 6, 7, 8, and 9, all of the events of creation, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, are going to be uncreated. That's what you have in the Noah story, is you have creation has become so ruined by the rampant evil of humanity that God says, and there's word plays in the Hebrew, you have ruined your way upon the face of the earth. I am now going to send ruin upon the face of the earth. In other words, there is going to be this massive cataclysmic uh, uh, undoing of creation. And, and it's going to be signaled in many ways. And, and it's going to look like utter and complete judgment, but there will be one family who is saved through that judgment, not taken away from it, but saved through it. That's why Jesus will point back to that section when he talks about the coming future judgment. Uh, spoiler alert, you absolutely want to be left behind. Don't listen to what the dispensationalists say or rapture teachers. You want to be left behind, trust me. Just like Noah and his family will be left behind after everything is wiped off the earth. And then God is going to pick back up and show that his covenant promise he made, even in the face of human evil, the promise he made to the woman and to the man in Genesis 3 is not going to be overturned even by their own sin and the sin of their offspring. That even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of grief, God always preserves a remnant always preserves a righteous remnant so that no matter how dark the night gets, dawn will always come. And, and that's massively comforting when we look around at the world today, when we look at our own lives, when we are wondering where is God as our world seemingly descends into evil and chaos and uncreation all around us, that there's always that promise of God. But Again, that's jumping ahead. That's what's going to be in the coming uh, couple of sessions. Right now, though, the events that led up to that, that's the question that people have when they read Genesis 6, 1 through 8, this mysterious passage in the Bible. What, what was so bad about the earth that God said, I'm going to wipe it away and start over? And many people look to Genesis 6, 1 through 4, and they say this, this is what led to the flood. 
Others say, no, this is just describing normal life in this age of heroes of renown and shortly after. So this and this 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 primordial prehistorical and by prehistoric I don't mean dinosaurs I mean before written history this age when these things were all happening this is just a snapshot of that age what it was like so there's three main views there's there's kind of four main views of how to interpret this sons of god daughters of men nephilim what's going on there and I'm going to try to encapsulate them and then I'll point you to resources you can go that will give a little more. Um, the first view says that the sons of God and daughters of man are just two ways of saying men married women. And that was what God had told humanity to do was to be fruitful, multiply. So the sons of God is just a generic term for men who are in the image of God. And so the son, you know, Seth was in the image of Adam. Adam was in the image of God. So therefore Seth is in the image of God. So Seth can be called a son of God and daughters of men or daughters of human daughters of Adam were a way of talking about human women. And it was just figure of speech, idiomatic way of saying men married women. They were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage, and nobody knew what was going to happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is directly quoting Jesus in Matthew's uh, Olivet Discourse. So some interpreters say, so this is just presenting everyday life. People marrying, being given in marriage, and then the God saying, my spirit will not contend or will not abide or will not remain with man forever, is explaining how lifespans went from these hundreds of years down to around 120 years, which is how old Moses was when he dies. And Moses is kind of the capstone. Moses' death is the final thing in the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So this is all kind of long foreshadowing Moses, who's going to be the main character beginning in the book of Exodus. This is kind of hinting at or looking forward to Moses' death at the end of the Pentateuch, at the end of the Torah. And so that is just God saying, that's explaining how lifespans of the patriarchs that were, or the, the pre-flood um, ancestors were hundreds of years why did Noah only, or why did Moses only live to be 120 years? So that's one interpretation of this whole thing. And then the note about the Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterwards, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men, had children by them, that's an aside preparing the reader for the fact that later when the spies go and enter the land and scout it out, they're going to come back and give the Israelites the report. It's going to happen in the book of Numbers. They're going to say, hey, we, there's no way we can take the land. There's giants in the land. We even saw Nephilim there. So we need to hightail it back to Egypt. And so this is, again, looking forward to or setting the tone and saying that these these people in the earth on this time, this is when the mighty men, the, the fallen ones, the, the gigantic or the fearsome warlords were everywhere on the earth. And even afterwards, the descendants or, or people who are like them will be in the land when the spies go and check it out. And so it's just kind of this foreshadowing. That's one way of reading all of this. Um, if you want to know more on that way, uh, John Salehammer is an Old Testament scholar. He's written this book. It's backwards on your screen if you're watching on Facebook Live because I can't flip the camera because I'm on Android. But it's, a, it's called The Pentateuch as Narrative. 
by John Sailhammer. And he has his section. This covers all of the Pentateuch. Uh, it's a, kind of like a running commentary of the first five books of the Bible. And that's his view that he puts forth on this section of what we're reading. The second view is that the Nephilim, or excuse me, the second view is that the sons of God were, when we see that phrase, sons of God, elsewhere in scripture, B'nai Elohim, that refers to angels. And so like, for instance, Job, the phrase sons of God is talking about the angels. So under that view, and this view goes all the way back to ancient Jewish interpreters as well, and early Christian interpreters, the sons of God were angels, and the daughters of men were human women. And so this text is saying that the angels saw human women, just like Eve saw the fruit and saw that it was good and took it. The angels saw human women, these angels, and took them sexually and had children with them. And these hybrid angelic human children became what in the ancient world were the semi-divine heroes that are all in things like the Gilgamesh account or Egyptian literature or other Mesopotamian uh, legends and myths. And so what this is saying is that rather than those heroes of old being semi-divine beings like children of the gods, they were actually the result of the illicit union of fallen angels, of demons, and of humanity. And so that show that God looks at that when it happens and he says, I got to put a stop to this. Lifespans limited 120 years and I'm going to flood the earth and get rid of all of this nonsense. So that's another view. That's a, that's a very traditional view. You'll find that uh, fantastic Old Testament scholars even argue for that view. My professor, Doug Stewart, is a prime example of one who takes that view. Um, and, and it is an old view. It goes back to uh, early church. They link this with passages in Jude and in Peter's letters that talk about angels being locked in chains of darkness because they left their heavenly dwelling or because they rebelled or because they committed some type of offense like the offense of Sodom and Gomorrah, which implies something of sexual nature. Critics of this view say, hold on, time out, one, that's just bizarre, but something being bizarre, it doesn't mean, automatically mean it's not biblical because other bizarre things happen in the Bible. More than being bizarre, this seems to go against what Jesus himself taught about the nature of angels. When Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce and uh, who somebody will be married to if they're a widow and they remarry and then in the resurrection, whose husband will she be? And Jesus said, in the resurrection, there's not going to be any marrying or giving a marriage. People will be like the angels. So people have said that it shows that for Jesus, angels were not sexual beings. And they, so this passage is not saying that angels are who the sons of God were. And the response is, well, Jesus just said they wouldn't marry and be given in marriage. It didn't say anything about sexuality or how that works on and on. So that is another view, a traditional view, that this is describing fallen angels and that the Nephilim were the offspring of these illicit unions between 
fallen angels, angelic beings who do appear as humans and who do things like eat in the presence of people. We'll see this even a few chapters later in Genesis where angels show up and have a meal uh, with Abram. But the tension in that view is it seems to go against what the New Testament Jesus himself taught about the nature of angels to begin with. Um, and it's also super weird. We just, we need to admit that. So that's a, another view. A view that is taken by the reformers and other interpreters like Luther, Calvin, and, and others over the years was that, think about what we've just seen. We've just seen these two genealogies in chapter five, the line of Cain and the line of Seth. And so what we have now is the phrase, the daughters, the sons of God, that's describing the godly people, the people in the line of Seth, who was the image of God. So Seth's offspring, all the way down to Noah, the godly men, and Cain's offspring, the daughter of humanity, the daughter of men, daughters of men. So this is talking about the, the godly line of Seth, intermarrying, taking wives, not marrying other believers, other godly women, but being overwhelmed by the beauty of ungodly women from the line of Cain and intermarrying with them. And therefore the, the covenant worship faithfulness of God becoming diluted over the centuries, over the millennia. And so until you resulted in Noah's day where only Noah was left among all the people of the world who even remembered or had remained true to God. Uh, and that, again, that argument goes, has a pretty long pedigree. Some of the key reformers and, and interpreters in church history have held that view. Uh, if you want that view more in depth on it, uh, Ken Matthews has a fantastic commentary. He's a Baptist uh, commentator in the new American commentary series in AC, his commentary on Genesis one through 11 is uh, he takes this view and he argues for it and he interacts with the other views and shows why he thinks that is the one that makes the most sense. Third view. So first view, sons of God, fallen angels, daughters of men, human women, Nephilim, offspring, monstrous, disastrous offspring, ungodly offspring of, of that illicit union. Second view, sons of God, line of Cain or line of Seth, daughters of man, line of Cain, intermarriage leading to, just like it does later in Israel's history, intermarriage leading to a dilution of obedience to God and, and the, the motif of, of pagan wives or pagan uh, spouses leading faithful Israelites away from worship of God. So that's what's being foreshadowed here in that second view. Third view is looks at the, uh, uh, the wider context of the ancient Near East. And the third view says, wait a minute, in Ugaritic, for instance, which is a close parallel language to biblical Hebrew, in Ugaritic, the phrase B'nai Elohim or B'nai El, sons of El, that phrase is what divine would-be kings, would-be divine kings, kings who said we're kings and we're also offspring of the gods, which is what most kings in the ancient world claimed, that is the self-title that they used of themselves. We know that certain kings called themselves the son of God or son of the God. And so this is Genesis once again gathering up 
motifs from the ancient Near East, mythological or, or epic language, their worldview, and showing how it incorporates into the story of all of humanity that leads up to the culmination, which is the one being called out of humanity to be the means by which God rescues humanity, Abram. And so the third view says that sons of God was a phrase or a name that pagan tyrant kings frequently gave themselves. And daughters of men was just the phrase or the way to describe peasant women, non-divine women, in other words, women, normal women. And so this is actually hinting at an age when, when ancient, mighty, self-aggrandizing tyrant kings were ruling the earth, were ravaging the earth, were, were doing all of the exploits, all of the things that, that the Gibberim, the heroes of old, the men of name, men of renown is what the phrase is translated in the NIV. It says men of name. They were always trying to establish their name on the earth. And their name was established through their violence, through their sexual potency, through the number of offspring they fathered. And so this was like, and this is saying that during this age was when these heroes of old, these, these mighty men, these uh, these gigantic, larger-than-life figures, these these what we would call Conan the Barbarian types, were were running roughshod over humanity and taking wives from whoever they chose, like Lamech had done in a previous chapter. Saw two wives and took them. Remember, God's plan, one man, one woman, in perpetuity. Lamech comes along and says, not good enough, two women for me. And now... Even further down, we get to Genesis 6, these self-aggrandizing sons of God, these kings, tyrant kings, taking whoever they choose, whoever, and spreading their seed as much. I mean, think like Genghis Khan, you know, like a fourth of Asia is descended from Genghis Khan or something like that because of how many women he impregnated and how in, in his quest to make a name and expand his empire. I mean, I mean, think of a Genghis Khan type. And that's kind of what the third view says, the sons of God is an ironic or a sarcastic or, or a, a, a idiomatic way of describing these would-be divine kings, rulers, warriors. And so that's the third view. And so God says, I'm going to put an end to this. And humanity has 120 years before I stop all of this. Uh and so that's where people say, so this 120 years is not God saying, I'm going to make it so that people only live 120 years anymore, because we know even after this, people, some people did live longer than 120 years. Even today, some people have lived longer than 120 years. So what, they, what this interpretation says is the 120 years was that time of forbearance that God gave before sending the flood in the next chapter, this time of repentance this time for Noah to get the ark ready, which would have taken a long time for one family to build a structure that large. Um, so the 120 years has nothing to do with limiting human lifespans. It's God saying the clock has started, only 120 more years of this, and then it's all coming down. So those are three views. Uh, uh, an excellent argument for that third view is Vic Hamilton in his New International Old Testament commentary or commentary on the Old Testament series. 
um, in volume one, Vic Hamilton makes a compelling linguistic case that if we look to the ancient world, we can see how this phrase is used elsewhere, and that helps us understand what it would have meant in the time uh, of Israel. Another uh, resource that takes that third view but presents all three is uh, my other Old Testament professor, Walt Kaiser, in Hard Sayings of the Bible. This is about, all, if you ever have, this is a book should be on your shelf because whenever you come across weird uh, passages or things you read in scripture that don't make sense, if you grab hard sayings and look up that verse, most likely they've written on it. And on this passage, is, uh, Kaiser does a good job of laying out all three of those views that we just talked about. And ultimately he says, I lean towards the tyrant king's view, but does a good job in noting that all three of the views have strengths and all three of the views have weaknesses. You can make a compelling case for each of those views. And that's why Genesis 6, we've spent almost an hour just on these four to eight verses because this is the one, the passage that people have so many questions about and they're legitimately different ways to take it. And so I'm giving you those views. Uh, I'll tell you which one I lean towards in just a minute, but I'm giving you those views so that you can understand when you come to this passage, you need to hold your interpretations with very loose hands. Anybody who says, oh, I'll tell you what Genesis 6, 1 through 4 means and, and is dogmatic about it, they're either ignorant, most likely they're just ignorant, they don't know the other views, or they're lying. They're being dishonest. Uh, because no competent scholar will take a hard stance on this passage and say, this is what it means. The best Old Testament scholars will say, this is a mysterious passage. And there are multiple ways you could interpret it. Here are the ways. Here are the strengths of each way. Here are the weaknesses or the challenge that each of those views has. And in the end, here's where I land on it. That's what good scholarship will do, not just in this passage, but in any passage where Christians disagree. Um, but for this passage in particular, it's incredibly important because it is such a mysterious passage. L let me just say this. Where do I land on all this? Well, there are other ancient Near East flood accounts. Um, there are other Noah stories. The Babylonian story of Noah, the Noah figure, his name is Utnapishtim. And Gilgamesh actually goes, seeks out Utnapishtim to ask him, how did you survive the flood and gain immortality? And so Utnapishtim tells Gilgamesh about the flood and what happened and how he built an ark and how he put animals on the ark. I mean, it's, it's so much so that people are like, oh, Noah just, the Bible just ripped off Gilgamesh epic. I don't think so. I think this is a bigger thing happening in the world that all of these traditions have remembered in some way. There's an Akkadian version where uh, the Noah character is Atrahasis, and Atrahasis is sa same thing. Uh, you know, is this wise man who's sought out, and uh, Gilgamesh wants to know the secret of immortality and, and the gods and everything. And, and an even older version, the Sumerian version, um, Ziasudra is the name of the Noah character who's sought out because of his wisdom. So all of these old, these accounts from the ancient Near East, from the time in and around and before the Old Testament account, they all have this residual notion that there was 
that humanity did something and it angered the gods. And so the gods decided to wipe out humanity and it would have worked, but one man survived that flood through the aid of one of the gods who told him how to build an ark and what to do. And therefore was not destroyed, excuse me, was not destroyed in the flood that ravaged the ancient world. So you have this, and this is in Sumerian, Babylonian, Akkadian, you have the, this residual concept. So what I think the Genesis account does is I think it seeks to put the story leading up to Abraham into its context in the ancient world. And it seeks to say, hey, I know you all, have, I know you have your stories, your, your Atrahasis, your Ziasudra, your Utnapishtim, all of these, let me, let me tell you about what actually happened. Let me tell you the story. Let me do it from the perspective of how it fits in to God, Yahweh, sovereign God of all creation and his desire to rescue and redeem all of humanity. Let me tell you what actually happened with the flood, that it wasn't because in the Gilgamesh account, the gods get angry because humans are too loud. Literally, they're too noisy and the gods can't sleep. So they decide to wipe out humanity. And the Genesis account says, no, it wasn't that. It wasn't anything as banal or mundane as that. It, it, it was because all of these heroes of old, all of these men of renown that you guys revere, they were mighty and they were evil. They, their deeds were dark. They were violent. They were overcome with lustfulness and carnality and earthiness. And, and they were not, they were maybe heroic in your epics, but in God's eyes, they were nothing. That's what I think the Genesis account does. If, here's the Gilgamesh epic. So this is ancient Near East text related to the Old Testament. Listen to some of what Gilgamesh says to get a concept of what in the ancient world men of renown were considered to say or do. Gilgamesh opens his mouth and he says to Enkidu, who's his like wild man, kind of brother in arms, combat friend, who my friend can scale heaven. Only the gods live forever under the sun. As for mankind, numbered are their days. Whatever they achieve is but wind. Even here, thou art afraid of death. What of thy heroic might? Let me go then before thee. Let my mouth call to me. Advance, fear not. Should I fall, I shall have made a name. Gilgamesh, they will say, against fierce Huwawa, which was like this monster that Gilgamesh uh, fought. Gilgamesh has fallen long after my offspring have been born in my house. So Gilgamesh in this section is, is, is trying to rally Enkidu into battle and saying, you know, follow behind me. We're going to make a name. We're going to have offspring. Our name will be renowned. These deeds that we've done will be renowned. This is, this is exactly what we're hearing in Genesis chapter 6. Um, Gilgamesh goes on, um, I, Gilgamesh, he says, How, uh, I will conquer him in the cedar forest, talking about one of the monsters they're going to go fight or one of the uh, evil forces. I will cause the lands to hear. My hand I will poise and will fell the cedars, meaning I will cut down the, this mighty forest. A name that endures I will make for myself. Again, Gilgamesh wanting to secure a name in this epic. 
Gilgamesh tells Enkidu, he says, My friend who art versed in combat, accomplished in battle, touch but my garment and thou will not fear death. You know, my lack of fear of death will rub off on you if you just touch my garment. And then Gilgamesh says to the lyre maids, uh, the, the musician, the musical dancers, the women of Uruk, which is his city, say these words, who is most splendid among the heroes? Who is most glorious among men? Gilgamesh is most splendid among heroes. Gilgamesh is most glorious among men. And then he goes on continuing to brag about his conquest and his battles. And these, these are examples. That's from the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Akkadian version. Um, these are examples of what people in the ancient world held up as men of renown. In the biblical account, what we see is whatever their origins were. I personally lean to, I think Vic Hamilton's argument is, is the strongest, that the sons of God is not talking about angels. I think it's actually using a phrase that men like Gilgamesh and others used of themselves. And I think this whole section is describing that continued downward spiral of evil and of, of, of humans holding to and revering violence and power and conquest. And only during all of this, one person finding favor in the eyes of God, and that's somebody who is none of those things, Noah. And so that, that's my view. I, now, I have friends, I have colleagues, I have professors who hold to one of the other views. And so I don't rule those out. I think the view that situates this within the world of Gilgamesh makes the most sense. And this is a biblical version explaining what's happening during this time that to the other peoples around Israel were the good old days. The glory days, the days of men of renown and heroes and warriors. And what the biblical account says is, no, those were days of violence. Those were days of bloodshed. Those were days of wanton rebellion and sexuality, boundaries being crossed, wives being taken in, uh, from whoever they choose with no regard for, for the male-female uh, lifelong, both in the image of God concept that now you have the men are the sons of God, the mighty tyrant warriors, and the women are just daughters of humanity. So they are just property that can be taken. I mean, I, to me, that's how Genesis 6, 1 through 4 reads most uh, faithfully, given all of what we know of the biblical text and from the ancient world and passages like Gilgamesh and other accounts. Uh, that's what makes the most sense. But choose for yourself. Do the research, look at the resources, uh, listen to the arguments, and see what you think. What this all says, though, this culminates with verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So during this time when the Nephilim were on the earth, these mighty men, these fallen ones were on the earth, during that time when things seemed to be about adventure and power and might and men of renown, men of name like Gilgamesh who had their names remembered, God looks down at all that and he's grieved. And he sees, I see people who are only evil all the time. 
And there's one exception. We'll meet him in the next chapter. We got to go, guys. It's an hour. Um, this is by far the most in-depth we'll ever go in one of these discussions on four verses or five verses. But like I said, it's they're the most enigmatic verses in the entire Bible. And so it's worth pausing. If for no other reason than next time somebody asks you, hey, what are the sons of God, daughters of man, da, 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 just pull up the Disciple Dojo podcast of this episode and say, hey, here's an hour-long discussion that, that goes into all you want to know about this passage. And you can point that too. So this will be in the archives in, the, in our library. Um, next week, we're going to get into the flood story. And we're going to look at that. The flood story will lead us then to the Table of Nations. The Table of Nations will lead us to the Tower of Babel. And then we will meet Abram. And that will conclude our study of these opening chapters of Genesis.